This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 106 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, with the help of special guest Mark Neiman Ross, we discuss Ted Chang's 1998 novella, Story of Your Life. We'd like to welcome our guest this week, the author of numerous sci-fi stories that have appeared in Analog Magazine over the years, Mark Neiman Ross. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Luke. This is great. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for coming on, Mark. I'm really excited. I heard that you guys went to a sort of presentation recently. Yeah, it was um, the Science Fiction Writers Association uh, annual reading, and Ted was actually there. It was really cool to hear him speak in person. Yeah, it was awesome. I was there. Uh, so, Mark, you help organize these events in Portland? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I handle the logistics, making okay. sure that there's a space to meet and that people actually show up and that there's things like microphones and, and you know, electricity. So <laughs> Right. So my understanding is this is a quarterly event uh, in, in and around Portland that they do. And there's also a similar event up in Seattle, right? Yeah. So what we do is we coordinate with um, the Seattle slash Kirkland event. Um, we get authors that will show up on a Tuesday and they'll do three authors. They do a quick reading, um, about 20 minutes a piece. Uh, they get a day off and then they come down here to Portland and they do the exact same thing. Uh, so we, we coordinate with Seattle. It's the same authors and it runs um, roughly every quarter with space in between for the summer break. Yeah, cool. And you can you you can hear more information about that at the sfwa.org website. Look under readers, resources and you'll see the reading series right there. That's so cool. And, and what an incredible story to to see a presentation like that on. Like there's so much to dig into and so it's such a deep well to pull from. I feel like there's there's a lot going on here. Yeah. Oh. Absolutely. <laughs> and it was interesting. Um, I mean, Ted, his presentation didn't necessarily have a direct, well, he wasn't directly talking about this story. But indirectly, as you read the story and you look at his presentation, Ted's all about the same theme coming up in a lot of different ways. It was really fascinating to see how right. he connected the dots. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I want to get into more of that. Um, so, but yeah, just to, to cap off the SFWA stuff, um, I've been to a few of them. They're a lot of fun. If you are in the Pacific Northwest, definitely check them out. There's all kinds of different writers that you'll get introduced to new ones, maybe some you know. Um, really cool event. While I was there, I was able to get a book. Well, actually, I got, I got two books signed by Ted. Um, one was for me, but one I got for our podcast listeners. So I actually have a copy of Stories of Your Life and Others uh, signed by Ted Chang that I'm going to be giving out to our listeners. And the way to enter to win that, it's only one copy, but um, if you are listening to this episode, you're already doing the thing you need to do. All you got to do is send us an email with the subject line, Heptapods. <laughs> subject line, Heptapods. Let us know you are, want to enter, the, in, uh, enter to win the book, and you will be, uh, be put on a list, and then we will be picking somebody at the... Uh, we decided we're going to do one week after our arrival film episode, which is going to be next week. Uh, so it'll be about a three-week uh, giveaway process. Um, send that email in and enter to win. It's a cool, it's a cool uh, collection, and yeah, you could have yourself a signed copy. Yeah, is that stories of your life? 
Yes, stories of your life yeah. and others. <laughs> yeah, there's actually one story in there that was never published before. It's only in that collection. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I haven't got a chance yeah. to read the whole thing. I just read I just read this story, but as I was reading, I was like, I got to read this whole collection. <laughs> it, it's it's great. How many do you think are in there? There are seven stories here, um, and slash like novellas and stuff like that. Some of them are are long stories, like stories. Story of your life is pretty long. Um, so yeah, seven. Cool. Yeah, enter to win that book. Uh, I did want to reiterate that it, you it's it's chosen randomly. We're not just picking uh, someone. It'll be yeah. it'll be randomly determined. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll put your name on a list and do some sort of random number generator, and that'll be how to, how it's uh, determined. All right. So uh, one other thing we want to do before we really get into it is we want to go ahead and thank our patrons, Cora S and Amanda VP. They spent their tokens that we awarded during our hundredth episode. Uh, spectacular, you know, celebration <laughs> giveaway we were doing. Um, they got tokens they could use to request a project. Uh, they put them towards this project, which unlocked, and yeah, now we're doing it. So you can thank them if you like these episodes. And thank you to them for for being patrons and putting their tokens towards this because this was one we were going to do eventually. But I love that it's just been kicked up to to priority, and we're covering it now. Right. It went to the top of the queue as soon as they paid it off. So it was like, oh, we're, we're doing it now. <laughs> um, and if you'd like to find out how to, you can also commission a project of your own choosing, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. All right. So this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Ted Chang's bio, uh, who he is, and some of the history of this story. Then we're going to talk about it in non-spoiler terms. If you're someone who's just checking out this episode, trying to decide if you want to read it. Um, and then we will move into spoilers, but we'll definitely make sure to let you know so you can decide if you want to hear the spoilers or not. How's that sound, everybody? Good. Sounds cool. Perfect. So before we get into this, uh, I was thinking about it, Mark, and I think we we rode up to a writer's retreat in Rainforest. March of, yeah. what, two years? No, almost two years ago now? It was two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I remember we were talking about the podcast and I think this project in particular came up and we started to talk about it. And then I remember saying something like, no, 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 don't actually don't talk to me about it because I I think I want to have you on the podcast. So you have to save it for then. (laughs) So this is a this is a conversation that has been waiting two years to happen. And in fact, I feel like several times we've almost had it. But I I kept telling you, no, 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 we got to (laughs) wait. It's been aging and fermenting. It's a little bit of commentary on on this project, actually, right? It's like kind of like maybe you had that conversation then, and it's some sort of like time is a flat circle thing going on. That's what I should have said, man. When we went to go have it, I should say I remember when we had this. I remember when we will have this conversation on the podcast. <laughs> I was just gonna say, yeah, yeah. You have to mix tenses in order to appropriately talk about this story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we we will have to discuss at some point about when. <laughs> But when we have this conversation, let's see. <laughs> I remember when yeah. we will discuss Arrival next yeah, week. Right, with right, Fon- right. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, so if you haven't read the story, you probably don't know what that is. Um, essentially, one of the things we I think is, is awesome about the story is the way uh, Ted uses his tenses. And he talks about uh, remembering events that are that have yet to occur. And uh, when it's it's a fun little way to structure these these uh, these flash forward, I guess, uh, sections that that intersperse our main plot line, which is the uh, interacting with the aliens. Um, You know, it's something that'll drive every English teacher crazy because he in, in a sentence, he will mix tenses. And, you know, the first time I read this through, it was like. I'm not supposed to be doing as a writer. I'm not supposed yeah. to do that, right? And right. then you look and go like, 
okay, he gets away with it. It's perfect what he did. And he's deliberately doing it for an, for a desired effect, right? To to create that sense of being unstuck in time, um, which is my Vonnegut nod, which which I think he'd approve of because there's a quote he put yeah. in his his uh, story uh, notes about Vonnegut, which I can get to in a minute here. But I want to let James weigh in. What do you think? You were talking about his grasp of of language and his grasp of like linguistics and the way he manipulates things and i was just so so blown away in the story by his like clearly passion for language and like the way he manipulates it and the way that he is kind of um using language and we'll get more into like the symbols and everything like that but he's using language to mirror the plot and mirror some of the the structure of the story i just i I was really blown away and and anytime i read a story where you know, there's like a kind of satellite subject going on because this is clearly a story about like language in a way. But I, I learned so much about language in reading this story. So many things, many concepts I wasn't familiar with. And, and I always find that to be really engaging to have like a second kind of thing to pull you in. I read somewhere that it took him five years to figure out how to do this story, that he had to study linguistics for five years right. before he understood, you know, how to make it work. Uh that's a lot of time to research. <laughs> yeah, sure is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that kind of leads me. I'm going to use that to segue into a topic I want to. I wanted to address right at the top here. I've heard Ted uh, being described as a hard science fiction writer, um, and that's a term that that gets tossed around in in, in our uh, circles, our writing circles. And I, I found that in talking to people, a lot of people have different ideas about like what exactly that means. And as someone who has published a bunch of quote-unquote hard sci-fi stories mm. in analog, I thought I'd, I'd see what your thoughts are on that as a genre, what what defines it, if possible, and and what do you think of the public conception of it? Yeah, so I, um, I mean, I, I classify myself as a hard science fiction writer. And what, for me, that means is, is that I have to stay, my, my stories have to stay within um, generally acceptable bounds of physics. And every once in a while, I get, you know, like one gimme, one thing. (laughs) But if I do that, then everything else has to fall into place behind that. So, um, you know, if you're going to do faster than light travel, uh, then you have to still pay attention to the laws of, you know, relativity, physics, and that kind of stuff, as we currently know it. Um, Or thermodynamics. If you're going to do faster than like travel, thermodynamics still applies, and you have to understand those laws. You can't just suddenly turn off thermodynamics and expect you know things to work. When I when I when I read what Ted has done here, um, you know he's he there is a lot of stuff that he left um, untouched, unspoken, unexplained, and that leaves him within the range of hard science fiction because he doesn't have to explain necessarily that bit. Right. So in particular, I saw that he, when he was discussing the Fermat's principle of least time in this story, um, he, he says that he kind of left out um, some of the, some of the like nitty gritty stuff of the um, like subatomic level uh, I'm forgetting the names of these like <laughs> right. concepts, but he, he yeah. there's 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 some more science to this that he omitted, and he went with the more like classical look, at, a conceptual look at this principle. Um, and I, I I don't know, yeah, like you said, like I think because he he chose not to go into it, he's giving himself a little bit of wiggle room there. Yeah, 
You know, and to a certain extent, he's operating within the bounds of a novella. Um, <clears throat> he's only got so much time to explain relativity or, uh, you know, variance and the calculus of variance. And, right. oh, my God, <laughs> it's like, get on with the story. So, <laughs> um, Right. Well, so so that I think, you know, what? actually, before we get into sort of our general thoughts on this, this, I do want to uh, talk for a moment about. Uh, his biography, a little bit I could find on him, um, because I do think it is interesting to give context to what we are reading here. Uh, So Ted Chang was born in Port Jefferson, Jefferson, New York, to parents who immigrated to America from Taiwan after first fleeing China during the Chinese Communist Revolution. Uh, So he then later graduated from Brown University with a computer science degree, and then later attended uh, Clarion's Writer Workshop in 1989. So he's a Clarion graduate, um, which is cool because I know a bunch of those these days. And <laughs> so it's always fun to hear that. Um, I'm sure they are proud of him. <laughs> yeah. So he has won four Nebula Awards, four Hugo Awards, the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, which has been renamed, and the and four Locus Awards. So this is a this is a guy who is highly decorated, highly respected in our field, and and honestly, um, a very popular writer right now, as, as evidenced by I think he had a really good turnout at that reading uh, that reading presentation he did. Um, so the story of your life first appeared in a collection called Starlight Two, which was uh, published by Tor Books. In the story notes for his collection that I have here, he wrote that the inspiration for Story of Your Life came from a fascination in the ver- variational principle in physics. And I wanted to see if you can give us a, a quick rundown of what that means, Mark, because I honestly, I was trying to read it about what, what that means, and I was struggling. Um, it seems oh to have God. something to do with this. With this, It's talked about in the story a little bit, like the minimum-maximum kind of values of things and how you can either go to a minimum or a maximum. Um, yeah, yeah. Talk about putting me on the spot. Man. Yeah, yeah, I really am. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's okay if not. I mean, I, I honestly, I, I didn't get it, but I was like, maybe this is something everybody else understands, and I just don't. I don't know. Oh Lord, you know, I looked this up and I read through it. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm getting deep into statistics right now. I, I teach a, a programming language for that, and so to wrap my head around calculus, it's like you know, I only got so many brain cells in a day's. <laughs> you know, I can only expend so many. Uh, calc, you know, variational calculus, which is what he's playing with here, is beyond me. And I would only, I would only give you a manser about what that happens to be. <laughs> a manser, <laughs> a manser, you know, a man answer. It's like, okay, <laughs> right, right. I don't know. I'll make something up. Sounds good. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. All right, so I won't make you do that. Um, but Good. suffice yeah. it to say, it's it's it, this is I think why it's called hard side hard science fiction, right? Like it's it's dealing with real stuff that is cutting edge in a lot of ways, or it seems like it to me. This yeah, I mean this it's really a beautiful example of what hard science fiction can be, um, and and we can talk about this in a second. But everything that you look at that Ted has done, he has done the research too, and you could probably right. use it as an example in some you know, some calculus course as to how this stuff works or linguistics. Right. 
Well, uh, okay, so one last thing I'm going to say here about the story uh, before we get into it is that he has said that Kurt Vonnegut sum- summed it up best in his introduction to the 25th anniversary edition of his novel Slaughterhouse-Five. So I was thinking about Slaughterhouse-Five a lot while reading this story, actually. So I, was, I thought it was fun to see that uh, sort of nod to Kurt Vonnegut that he put in here. Here's the quote Hello, that he has. This is goodbye. this is Hello. Yeah. Goodbye. This is uh, Kurt Vonnegut uh, giving a quote about Slaughterhouse Five, but Chang has said that it applies to his story as well. So Stephen Hawking found it tantalizing that we could not remember the future, but remembering the future is child's play for me now. I know what will become of my helpless, trusting babies because they are grown-ups now. I know how my closest friends will end up because so many of them are retired or dead now. To Stephen Hawking and all others younger than myself, I say, be patient. Your future will come to you and lie down at your feet like a dog who knows and likes you no matter what you are. So I thought that was a lovely quote. I'm a huge fan of Kurt Vonnegut, so that made me happy to see. And it does really apply to this story, too. So, yeah, what what do you think of that, Mark? Uh, Well, I mean, you know, (laughs) Kurt was one of the first authors I got into, and Wrapping your head around that one after I I, I grew up reading um, E. E. Doc Cummings, uh, mm-hmm. you know the Lensman, which was all about big spaceships flying around really fast and ray guns and stuff. And then I get a hold of this Slaughterhouse Five thing. It was like, what, what is this? This is not what I used to know about science fiction. So it's really delightful <laughs> not a hard to sci-fi see it. writer. You could safe to say about Kervonigan. Oh uh, no, well he's <laughs> he's a yeah he's a he's a something else. Um, but it is. It's a really. It's a really interesting thing that Ted was inspired by that particular story, and it fits in. It makes yeah, it really a lot does. of sense. Right. At some point, I hope we'll get to cover that, James. I think there is a adaptation out there that I don't think is very well respected. Although I might be confusing that with Breakfast of Champions. I don't know. But either way, I hope we get to talk about that novel at some point because I absolutely love it. Yeah, a good friend of mine has said that it, he's told me multiple times to read it, and and it's. You know, since we started the podcast, I'm like, I think there is an adaptation. And I still haven't read Slaughterhouse Five, and I really would love to. Yeah, if they haven't made an adaptation, they need to so that we can cover it. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so, so yeah, just to dig in a little bit to that quote, I think it's also interesting. Like this idea that um, when you're older, you essentially have seen your future play out before you. And and the relationship to that future, the idea that it will come and lie down at your feet like a dog who who knows and likes you no matter what you are, is is where I think this quote really gets surprising to me. Um, there's a sort of acceptance of your own present, I guess, that I read into that, um, which does feel applicable to this story in general terms. This story made me think a lot about kind of the idea, because we're dealing with sort of... Uh, traveling through time or dealing with like time in a nonlinear sense it made me think a lot about like yeah. d- determinism and what it means to it, if, sure. if you believe that everything is fated to happen or everything will happen a certain way whether you push it in the opposite direction or not or whether it's you know th- this idea of free will if like if you knew what your future holds would you could you change it or would you change it um, and would you just end up in the same place anyway? And it, I don't know. It's it, it. This story has a lot of that wrapped up in it, um, more than I remembered there being in the film. Mm. That well, yeah. Now we're getting into the film, but uh, you know, the, the the one of the beauties about this story is that he does cover exactly that what you're saying. Um, you know, the the idea of free will 
And <clears throat> if you knew what you were going to do, would you go ahead and do it anyhow? And it's, we, we approach the idea of free will and determinism as something that we should defeat or try to, try to circumvent. And, and Ted mentioned this in his, his lecture. He talks about, you know, Oedipus. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, like Oedipus tried to get outside of the bounds of his prophecy and fell into it anyhow. Um, you know, we, we don't talk much about the idea that if you did know your fate, maybe it's something that you would want to cooperate mm-hmm. with rather than, you know, getting in there and trying to mess with the gears of time. Yeah, that's that's a endlessly fascinating topic to me. And you're right. He this is what his presentation he did was was on in, in a nuts and bolts sense. Um, I felt like he so he opened up talking about prophecy as being a sort of backwards time travel for information, <laughs> um, information traveling to you in the past from the future. And so he was talking about all this, uh, you know, the history of time travel stories in our culture. Um, and then he talked about the difference between, you know, uh, time travel stories that are um, sort of about a determinist worldview where uh, you can't escape your future. And then how in modern times he's noticed that a lot of uh, modern uh, sci-fi time travel stories are all about changing your future. Um, and that's because uh, our society has embraced free will as like something that we all want and want to believe we have. And uh, those are stories that are sort of champion the idea of free will. And uh, it is fascinating uh, sort of uh, to uh, coda to this, to, to read this story after that presentation and to uh, see that this something that is so intrinsic to this story and in the idea of this main character, Luis, um, and I guess it's a bit of a spoiler, so maybe I'll save some of this for later. But for now, I'll just say that uh, she is dealing with these questions and and how she wants to to handle um, the view, the new view of time that she acquires throughout the course of the story. <laughs> Try not to spoil <laughs> mm-hmm. anything. Um, yeah. But yeah, so in, in broad terms, like, yeah, what, what do you think of that? Ooh, um, yeah, without, <laughs> <laughs> without giving away the story, I mean, it's... Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's it's, um, and we can talk more about the structure of the story and how he flips back and forth between two. Um, I mean, there it's an it's two interlaced stories. Yeah, um, one of them being a very very much like an info dump on all of this language stuff that he's learned, right. and another one on how one of his characters deals with the change that that makes in in her particular life. Um, and thank God he jumps back and forth because otherwise it'd be a pretty dry read, uh, right. or a pretty That's emotional a point, yeah. read. Yeah. Um, so, so that, that does springboard me into wanting to talk about, um, so people might be checking out this episode of the podcast to determine whether or not they want to read this story. Maybe they saw the movie, fan of the movie, curious about the story. So, uh, when someone asked me about this just recently, I, I, I wholeheartedly recommended to them with the caveat of there's a lot of science in there and you may find the science sort of dry um, at times. Mm. But mm-hmm. if, if this sort of stuff fascinates you, then then I don't think that'll be a problem at all. Um, and so that's sort of where I land on that. What, what about you two? Who do you think should re- read this story um, or, or, or how do you feel about that? I think if you're interested in like non-traditional sci-fi stories, something that's Something that's hard to, not hard, but it takes, it's, it might take a couple rereads of a couple of sections to really wrap your head around some of these concepts. Um, 
I think it's a really engaging read. I think, like I said before, I think there's a lot there. There's the linguistic side of it. There's the the time, nonlinear time, kind of like w- what that represents. And then, I mean, you've also have aliens. So if you're interested in something like that, you're you're <laughs> right. you're dealing with aliens um, in the kind of a not a traditional, I guess, more more film sci-fi, not a traditional way. Um, there's tons of you know novels that are that are in keeping with this sort of like more serious and um, analytical tone of a sci-fi story you know what i mean just like more of like a right. typical sci-fi film yeah, that you yeah. would see would yeah. be more of yeah. i think that is still non-traditional because right. I, I would say the the majority of sci-fi does does deal with it in a similar way that uh that films do in my experience maybe i'm wrong in that what do you what do you think mark you, yeah i see the movie and the story as being you know just a pair and you really ought to look at them both they uh, I, I mean, I'm really impressed with how the filmmakers took this thing. And we'll talk more about this, but yeah, the story itself. Yeah. Next week, cover it next week. Um, <laughs> the story itself, what I really appreciate is, is, is that there is, um, there is enough science that I can go as deep as I want. Mm. And, you know, my calculus buddies and the physicist buddies are going to, have a heyday going through this thing and argue for days about one paragraph. But you know what? If you don't want to go that deep, that's okay because there's a lot of um, narration that kind of um, gives you context from a realistic humanistic point on what this stuff is changing. How does it make a difference? And you can get a vague idea of what he's talking about by breezing through the scientific components of the story. Um, I, I mean, you shouldn't be... Um, you shouldn't be put off by the science and the story. You shouldn't be as scared of it. You know, dive right. in, get as deep as you want. Um, and, and it'll, whatever you pick up will be useful for understanding the rest of this collection. You know? I agree. And, and so that's kind of where I came in on it at is that the science is really interesting. I am not someone who has much of a scientific background other than some courses I took here and there in college, even though I was a English major. <laughs> so, so I have the English major's understanding of most science, um, which is to say not great. Um, but I love to learn about it and I love to do my own independent research on it. watch, watch videos, that kind of stuff. And, uh, one of the things I loved about Ted's presentation is how accessible it was for someone like me who doesn't have that background. I don't have a degree in physics or, or that kind of thing. And I think that's the same thing with this story. You don't have to have a degree in this kind of stuff. You don't have to be a linguistics expert to read this story and appreciate it, but you're right. There's a lot of depth to where if you are a linguistics expert, I suspect you'll read this and, and get a lot out of it and, and maybe find a way to engage with it on that level. Um, and then, of course, uh, one of the things that I think makes Ted's writing special, um, and just this small amount I've gotten into, is that the emotional truth behind those, those sections about Luis's daughter throughout um, is really powerful. And it's the kind of thing you normally only see in really accomplished sort of literary writers. And uh, to, to see the combination of those scenes that were just like emotionally poignant and then you pair it with the deep science, it was really cleverly done, um, expertly done, and something that I, I definitely admired when I read the story. So if that sounds like something yeah. you're interested in, yeah. you should check yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah. I like yeah. what you said about um, like the, the merging of those two things. Like I, I was noticing a lot of patterns with that. Like I was noticing this merging of like an analytical perspective with the emotional, more abstract 
things that were going on with our main character and the way that she was perceiving the world. And then I was, and then you just, you just, you can just go down the story piece by piece and see these like comparisons or, or like, I don't know, merging or, or just completely uh, juxtapositions. But you see like the aliens and us and you see the way that their language represents kind of their culture and you see mm-hmm. our language as maybe more analytical or more concrete with like the, the alphabet and, and like we have very specific symbols and theirs is yeah. more interpretive. And, and then we have like the, the difference of, of our main character, the protagonist and, and um, her husband and kind of their sort of like math versus language background. And, and I, just, I just kept right. seeing this pattern. And I, I thought that was really effective. And it kind of, he was able to tell two very different structures or, or uh, subjects within that narrative to kind of get at the analytical side of people and the emotional side of people. Yeah. Mm. He, he's, he's very efficient with his characters. And by that, I mean that, <clears throat> you know, um, he uses like Louise, the, the main voice in the character, mm-hmm. um, represents that that linguistic thing and she's our proxy into this whole world this all understanding and she does a really good job of explaining what it is that she is learning as she's learning it now she does that by um explaining it to um you know, i spaced out his name gary the, um, gary gary yeah that's right yeah so she does it by explaining it to gary aka mm-hmm. you uh but then gary provides this physics point of view and then they you know they provide all the other humanity stuff that goes well, on in there. So wait, yeah. so I I read you as the daughter. So like when when she's addressing you and she says this is this is when you'll do this and you'll do this. It's it's the daughter, right? Oh. Well, so yeah. There's a <laughs> now we're well. Are we getting into uh, <laughs> maybe we know. should maybe we should uh, get into the plot here <laughs> so before so we can yeah. really dial in on it. Um, so so does anybody have any other non-spoiler thoughts we get to before we give our spoiler warning? I did have one more thing I wanted to ask you guys that I felt would be kind of fun. Uh, just thinking about okay. determinism, I, I was wondering if you had any strong opinions of it. Is there? Do you have any sort <laughs> of? Uh, huh. I, I don't know. I guess I guess take yourself out of your current life and kind of think of determinism and, and think like, um, do you subscribe to that? Or is there, is, do you push back against that? Like, what, what do you think about that as a concept? Do you want to tackle that one, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> Jiminy crickets. Um, let's go back to a variational calculus. <laughs> okay. Um, no, no, let's not. Um, I thought you were going to link the two. I was going to be impressed. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Right. Million dollars right there. Um, you know, without getting woo-woo and religious about it, um, <clears throat> I think there is a certain amount of purpose to what we do. And that um, there, I, I also believe there's a lot of things that are going on that we can't necessarily understand. Like, and, and the nearest analogy I can give you is I have chickens out in the backyard. And, and I'll talk to my chickens about math once in a while. And, you know, it's like, no, really, you know, the, the, the square root of four is two. And they're all looking at me like, you know, they're just googly eyed. It's like, oh my God, here he is to feed us again. And, you know, it's blah, 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 ginger. So they don't have the, the processing power and linguistic understanding to understand what it is I'm telling them about math. They don't even know math is a thing. And I, I, take that up a couple of steps and there's probably things that I don't understand or I don't have the, um, the context to understand about what's happening. So getting back to your question about determinism, 
I'm not willing to believe that there isn't fate because I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, okay, yeah, I'm going to yeah, stop yeah. there. I get yeah. it. <laughs> and, and that, I, I, and I'm going to say something that probably means next to nothing, but um, <laughs> uh, this is something we talked about in some philosophy courses I took in, in college, and it's something I find endlessly fascinating. And I think where I'm at just personally, where I've landed, is, is the idea that uh, we, you, I don't know that free will and determinism are necessarily exclusive from one another. And the way that they might interact is the way that you're you're discussing. Like it's 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 something that maybe we just don't understand. Um, it, it seems like on the surface, of course, you can't have something be fated and also have something be truly free. Yet, it's more about like uh, Ted talked about this. It's more about uh, I think in the story it, it, it talks. It's like, do you have you read from the book that te- that has the record of your your existence? And if you haven't read from that book, even though it may exist already, you still have at least the perception of free will, even if it's already been determined. And and, and I don't know, like it's it's the question is, is that enough um, to say that free will actually exists or not? I don't know. This is a question for the philosophers. I'm not one. Um, but I, th- I, mean, I, I think just, what you just said there was a is a beautiful summation of one of the themes of this of the story. Right. No, it is. Yeah, because that's something that Louise deals with. Um as she starts to learn about her future is, is, uh, and, and that's something that I think Ted wants to talk about. And, and, and that was in his presentation and that's here. And you can look at it as a refutation of the possibility of time travel that, that because you can't possibly know your future because then you would change it, which makes it not like, uh, which invalidates things and creates paradoxes. Right. And, and because of that, people can say, well, time travel must not be possible, um, for that reason alone. Um, but then I also thought in his presentation, he gave one of the best arguments for it actually being possible. And here's how it could happen if it could happen, mm-hmm. um, which was yeah. fascinating that he could sort of set it up and then knocked it down. And and I don't know that there's a good answer for that. It's something that we're we're going to be asking for a long time, I think. And whether that's a scientist question or a philosopher question or both, I, I don't know. Yeah, I like how you guys answered that. Um, a lot of what this story was making me think about was how we see events in our life as... Um, cause and effect right so like we like we right. do something and that leads to us mm-hmm. then doing this next thing and that next thing and just this idea this concept of like it be if if there is a way that we can see our life from the top down and look at it all on on some plane and understand that this doesn't necessarily lead to this but um in some way it was always going to happen you know and, but it, it i don't know it kind yeah. of touches on like if, what is the meaning of life at that point, right? It's like if, if everything's predetermined, sure. then why not just like lay back and let whatever happens happens? And I, I don't know. I just found it endlessly fascinating to, to kind of mull over in my head. You yeah. know, and, and yeah. to bring in another super heady sci-fi concept, it also feels kind of pointless to me to worry about it. Um, and that's like the same thing with the idea. It's the like simulation argument that the entire universe and us and our consciousness is all part of a simulation run by some computer, I guess. Um And the point being to me that, like, if the simulation is so good that is indistinguishable from reality, then there's no point in arguing about it. As people people in the simulation, it's beyond us to worry about it. So we should just live our lives peacefully in the simulation. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. And, well, and well, that, that, I mean, yeah. this gets back to, yeah, it gets back to having the, the, the frame of reference and the vocabulary to even be able to discuss it. Right. Um, I mean, we may look outside of our computer-generated reality at what is actually reality and have no clue what we're looking at because right. we don't have the structures and the, the, the structures and vocabulary that we need in order to describe what it is mm-hmm. we're seeing. Yeah. So, so ultimately, what's the point in doing it? <laughs> I mean, it's well, fun, I guess, well, but but uh, you're not gonna you're not gonna like figure it out. <laughs> and that's the way I feel about free will slash determinism stuff. Like, of course, it feels like you have free will, free will, and it would even if you had even if determinism is 100 percent true and you have a faded future, it doesn't matter to you because anything you do in response to that idea is something you would have done anyway. You can't escape it. So, mm-hmm. so, the, and that there's a sort of like a claustrophobic feeling you can get when you think about that. And I love that this story engages with that in what I thought was sort of a, like a new take. And instead of being sort of afraid of it or, or trapped by it, um, Luis deals with it in a, in a, in a way where she embraces it, which yeah. we got to get into spoilers here. Cause I, I'm, we're starting to bump <laughs> up against them. So I'm going to go ahead and give the spoiler tags. Sorry if any of that was a little bit spoilery. But we're going to get into now more specific stuff. Um, I actually have a plot synopsis I'm going to read a little bit of just to sort of set the table for us, and then we can we can dive into it more. Okay. So the story of your life is narrated by linguist Dr. Louise Banks the day her daughter is conceived. Addressed to her daughter, the story alternates between recounting the past, the coming of the aliens, and deciphering of their language, and remembering the future, what will happen to her unborn daughter as she grows up, and the daughter's untimely death. All right, so let's just stop there. So that's sort of the premise of the story, um, and what a premise it is <laughs> to deal with that and to, and to structure the story this way. Um, I, I, I am endlessly fascinated by story premises and then the execution that follows, um, but this is, this, is a, this is a big one to me. Yeah, I mean... That that paragraph is like it, it's a stunning paragraph, and then we all stand back and look at Ted and go, "Okay, buddy, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. yeah, now well, let's see how you do." Exactly, you've set up this this almost impossible sounding premise. How how do you execute it now? And that's the challenge as a writer, and your ability to execute it's gonna gonna determine how successful you are. Um, and and you know, I, I think it's safe to say he does a great job, knocks it out of the park. So. Um, oh yeah, and by the way, it, I, my copy is thirty nine pages long. Okay, it's you know it's just quick. It's a it does it's go a fast. Brief read. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a very efficient story. <laughs> so I'd be curious to know what the actual word count is on it because I, I've heard, I've seen it described online as a novella, but it feels to me more like a maybe a novelette length, but. I don't know how interesting that is to our listeners. <laughs> we, yeah. um, well, you can have a whole other session on that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. What, what do you think about this setup, James? So I don't know how much we want to talk about the heptapods this early on, but the story structure, mm-hmm. as I as I went on, I realized was Ted using the structure of the story in order to allow the reader to more easily interpret how the heptapods experience this sort of life in general, how they experience time. Time. And I loved that, like, as I was going on, the concept was not, it, it was not hard for me to grasp in any, any way that the heptopods would perceive time in this way, because that's exactly what our main character has been doing the entire time. The way that she, she bounces from her child, her future child, back to herself with the heptopods and learning the language. And I, the, the, just that, I think that one decision in structure uh, 
is is brilliant on its own and and it just makes for such an interesting and unique story i think something that really draws me to the story is that um these aliens really are alien yeah you know they're not they're not little green men yeah yeah with with two legs and two arms and they speak a you know a version of english right they're like you know not only their physical being is different but they're just their process of thinking about things is not it just you can't pick it up when you first get in there uh i I mean i love that about this story absolutely uh yeah we'll we'll get into the to the heptapods more now but uh james what you just said uh i wanted to 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 mention the the structure of the story uh I, i like that as he's analyzing the linguistics and the limitations of the sort of sequential speech of, of uh, human language, mm-hmm. um, he sort of protects himself from criticisms of that too, because it's like this story is being written down as we're reading it in human language. Mm-hmm. Therefore, there's a certain sequential nature to it by definition as you read it from start to finish. And it almost feels like if you could somehow step back and and s- truly experience the story all as one moment, one thing, you know, joined together that you'd have that like heptapod view of the, of the universe and and all through Ted's story here. So it could be potentially mind blowing. Right. <laughs> so cool. Which is cool. It like, works on this meta level, right? Uh, all right. So let's get into the uh, little bit of the plot here. What actually goes down? So the aliens arrive in spaceships and entered Earth's orbit. One hundred and twelve devices resembling large semicircular mirrors appeared at sites across the globe. Dubbed looking glasses, they are audiovisual links to the aliens in orbit, who are called heptapods for their seven-limbed r- appearance. Luis and physicist Dr. Gary Donnelly are recruited by the U.S. Army to communicate with the aliens and were assigned to one of the nine looking glass sites in the U.S. They made contact with two heptapods they nicknamed Flapper and Raspberry. In an attempt to learn their language, Luis began by associating objects and gestures with sounds the aliens made, which revealed a language with free word order and many levels of center-embedded clauses. She found their writing to be chains of semigrams on a two-dimensional surface in no linear sequence and semiseographic, probably saying that wrong, having no reference to speech. Louise concluded that because her speech and their writing are unrelated, their speech and their writing are unrelated, the heptapods have two languages, which she called heptapod A speech and heptapod B writing. So this is the initial discovery that the spoken language of the heptapods and the written language are in fact two different languages. Um, and the way that this discovery comes about within the story is definitely very hard sci-fi. It's very linguistic focused, mm-hmm. but uh, very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, I found that really interesting that, um, and, and Ted solves a problem too. It's like, okay, so how could this civilization um, evolve <clears throat> without, um, I mean, you assume that all civilizations evolve from some waveform transmission. That's our initial communication. We use sound mm. or we use light or something. And so, but that's, that's by nature a sequential form of communication. You can't have one sound appear before another, or you can't have all sounds appear at the same time without having cacophony. Right. So it's it's interesting how Ted has incorporated, okay, so they've got a sound language. Yeah, okay, it's there. But then they came up with this word language that is better suited to their um, understanding of how things work. I just thought that was a beautiful piece of, of, uh, of, of dodging mm-hmm. the inevitable. 
So I have a question for you guys, and I don't know. And I, I wanted to start by saying I love that this book had me Googling. I was Googling constantly trying to <laughs> right. really keep up with exact because that's the thing is like if I see a word that I completely don't understand and I can't put in context like I have to find out what it means to understand what's going on going forward so I love that I'm just googling all of these concepts and yes some of them are hard to wrap your head around even if you google them but sure. but it was still it's still an engaging <laughs> and fun read uh, but I wanted to ask you guys what because I, I believe there are certain languages here on earth even that you'll have symbols that represent entire sentences or entire there's entire meanings built into certain certain symbols right um right i think the the argument is given of um like do not cross kind of thing like or know what the circle and the slash mm -hmm. through it um yeah. what do you make of that like universe almost universal sort of languages and and how like it kind of relates back to this is that kind of the same concept or do you think that this theirs is so much more complex that like it's just well beyond anything like because i was thinking at first i was thinking a lot about like hieroglyphics or like i know there's some asian cultures that that some of their characters are, are like represent sentences or, or something like that luke <laughs> <laughs> um so to me this sounds like a question for a linguist um so anything i say i guess i'd be giving the old mancer as, as, uh, as mark said um but yeah i mean just to sort of uh think about what you're saying um i agree it does seem like there is a kind of a, a a little bit of this that goes on in our society and i think that's a good thing because it, it gives like a launch pad for understanding the concept that ted is trying to put forward here like, we do have an example of this in the, like, you know, no smoking symbol that's like, you know, or, or, or just do not do this thing, circle with a, a slash through it. Uh, it was an example of a, I think it's called like a non-glottal uh, type of language and that the, the symbol itself doesn't try to evoke sound. Um, it, it is sort of doesn't, it's not interested in doing that. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the argument is, is, is that that is what their language is doing as well, is it's not trying to evoke any sort of sound. This is purely a visual medium. And it's almost just like a basis, like a starting off point to what makes their language different than ours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you said. That's, um, you know, the, the, the red circle with a slash through it is something that he brings up. Um, somewhere along the line, and they talk about using. I mean, that that does not have a sound associated with it. It has a meaning associated with it. Right. <clears throat> the difference that I think that he's trying to make with that particular example is that it is still a sequential um, collection of thoughts. Right. That one thought happens before another thought, and what he's trying to get at in the story is is that the way that their writing works is it's. Um, you know, and they talk about writing the actual characters and how the the complete sentence is there even with the first stroke. Mm. And that in order to write that language, you have to know what the language or what the sentence is going to finally say um, yeah. versus writing, con you know, the slow fox caught the rabbit, which is all very um, sequential and one after another. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, I mean, it's not really related, but we were talking about Neil Gaiman and one of our other projects, how he, he handwrites a lot of his first drafts. And one of the things he found that he liked about it was that he would stop and think an entire sentence through before committing it to paper. 
and so that the sentences are sort of coming out fully formed. Obviously, you still have to write them sequentially, but the idea that you know where you're going before you set pen to paper um, is, is, you know, I thought kind of a novel one and, and something that was interesting. Um, and, and I thought about a little bit in this oh. story. Yeah. Something else that comes up for me when I think about the way that the heptapods write, like you're saying, it's all everything at once. Um, the only thing that I could really relate it to in my own mind was like a work of art, was like a painting. Is like every it, there may be meaning within a painting, oh, yeah. and everything's there immediately. It's whether like you pick up on the little pieces that are different than maybe something you'd see in another painting. So it's almost like looking at a piece of art and drawing meaning from it without it having a sound associated with it, like you were saying. Yeah, so that, that, that yeah, that's really an excellent way to look at it. Um, I mean, I I think so. Now you know Ted might have different opinions, but I, yeah, I dig. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 so for me when I was trying to wrap my head around it and especially when it started talking about like everything is there from the first stroke, it reminded me of uh watching something being printed. Like you, you know, if you write you write out something, you see it come out of the printer, um the line, the first stroke includes all of the words. Like a piece of all of the words comes out mm-hmm. together oh, yeah. essentially, yeah. or it feels like it does at least. And so I, that was kind of how I imagined it. It's like you have this symbol in mind and then you're almost printing it out, like uh, just building it all at the same time mm-hmm. um, with it all in mind. And and so that was kind of how I was able to picture their their ability to create these symbols. I like that. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me read a little more plot here. So attempts were also made to establish heptapod terminology in physics. Little progress was made until a presentation of Fermat's principle of least time was given. Gary explained the principle to Louise, giving the example of the reflection of light, and that light will always take the fastest possible route. Louise reasoned, uh, ray of lights has to, a ray of light has to know where it will ultimately end up before it can choose the direction to begin moving in. She knew the heptapods did not write a sentence one semigram at a time, but drew all the ideograms simultaneously, suggesting that they knew the entire sequence would what, what the entire sequence would be beforehand. Louise realized that instead of experiencing events sequentially, causality, heptapods experience all events at once, teleology. So there you go. There's some vocab terms for you. Um, <laughs> so so they're able to link this this uh, physics principle regarding the the refraction of light to an understanding of how heptapods uh, can use their language and experience events. Uh, what did you think of this uh, this uh, use of science to to bring apart this uh, this concept that is at the heart of the story? <laughs> I'm not. You know, it's like having read it. And I look back on it and go, like, how else would you explain it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, unfortunately, that's it. It's, um, and they, they, they talk about that a bunch. They talk about um, they're trying to communicate algebra. You know, and, and basic math, they're able to discuss via the, the looking glass. But then they start to get into algebra and geometry, and it just falls flat. They don't get it. You're talking about the scientists are trying to explain it to the heptapods. I'm sorry. Right. Yes. Right. They're trying to. They're they're trying to explain to the heptapods, um, you know, what vocabulary do you use for algebra? Mm-hmm. And the heptapods are going like, algebra, versus <laughs> das. We don't know. You yeah, know? yeah. And it's not until they get into this advanced calculus with Fermat's theory that they um, they now have a basis for for discussing things it it gives you again it sets you into this this situation where the 
the I mean the thinking of the aliens is truly alien. Yeah. Uh, and you have to you have to use that kind of language in order to understand how it is that they think. Yeah. Right. And speaking with speaking about this um, makes me think about how I interpret things as well. The the way that just speaking of like a formula like this, um, reading it on the page. I don't know about you guys, but um, you know it made sense the first time around. But I really I, I had to read it multiple times, and even then, that's when I turned to Google. This is a great example of when I turned to Google, and I needed like a visual representation of like what, and because I, I think it's because I'm such a visual learner. I'm such a visual like I see mm-hmm. things. Um, and that's really when I started to understand it to, I think, the extent that he was trying to, to compare it to the haptopods and the, the way that they were processing, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting thinking like, it, I, I couldn't, like, they, they can't interpret what we're saying with algebra or whatever, because it's, because it's like, they, they like are so beyond it or something like that. And then when I, when I read yeah. this on the page for myself, I'm like, oh, I can't interpret this in the same way that they can't interpret things. But then if I see it in a different way, it's, it becomes clear kind of thing. Yeah. So I think this is an example of how the science in this story is, is used so masterfully to, to uh, establish the, the themes, to establish the structure of the story and the plot of the story. And that's like brilliant hard sci-fi whenever I see it is, is where like you're talking about the truly alien and um, these heady concepts, but they're not just thrown in as like, what if, what if this was a thing? What if, you know, it's more like extrapolating out from uh, from a principle that we that is you know widely accepted. Well, let's extrapolate out from that. And what if building upon these things that we can all agree are true? Um, what if then this? So it's like a different way of asking what if, and and it's because it's where it, it's the starting off point that I think is so important. Yeah, you know, following up on something you said too, um, Stan Schmidt, who is the editor for Analog. Somebody asked him one time, well, what's, you know, what makes a good science fiction story? Mm. And how does that, how, what separates a science fiction story from not science fiction? And he would look at, and he would, said, well, okay, so in a science fiction story, the story can't exist without the science. Right. You can't just take a romance and throw in laser guns and have a science fiction story. The, there has to be some reason why those laser guns are there other than they happen to be in the story. And, and that's, you know, what he's done with this math. Um, and th- to build on that, uh, you know, they go on later and here's, I'm looking at this, this uh, little thing that I highlighted. By contrast, the linguists were having much more success. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's really interesting, you know, here they're, you know, the physicists are beating their heads against the wall and the linguists are going like, well, this is great. Yeah. This is easy. I'm starting to understand that. Um, now, what's telling is that particular paragraph ends with, um, you know, whether scientists or tourists, they were an awfully incurious bunch in mm-hmm. reference to the heptapods. They, throughout the story, and, and Luke, you'll, you'll get into this, I bet, but throughout the story, they're, they're not asking a lot of questions from the humans. Right. Yeah, and and they're they behave in a much more mysterious manner than they even do in the in the film, um, mm-hmm. where they, I feel like they do attempt to to attribute some some sort of motivations to the aliens. Whereas here, there's not it's not clear, um, and and I think that adds to that mystery, like you're talking about with the truly alien nature of, uh, and that's something we dealt with a little bit in like Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer, where oh, <laughs> where it's like, what if there's an intelligence that doesn't want things in the way that we understand it 
And that seems to be true for these aliens, too, and that their motivations may be just something we can't even understand. Um, and that's I think that's displayed by a scene where there's a there's like a bureaucrat, I believe he was or maybe a general or something um, with all these theories about like, well, they must want this and they, they're they're going to ask us for something. Right? And like he's right. coming up with all these things and they might say this, but what they actually mean. And and, and of course, uh, Luis and, and Gary are both <laughs> tuning him out because he's completely talking out of his ass. He has no idea. And he doesn't even realize how much he has no idea. Yeah. Well, he's trying to, you know, he's trying to overlay his understanding of the situation. Right. And the heptopods are like, whatever, dude, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and then the final gift exchange, which is like, we already knew this. <laughs> Wait <laughs> yeah. a minute. That's funny. Let's, Wait, let's, come back here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we have to talk about that when we get there. Let's uh, let's progress through okay. the plot a little bit more yeah. here. Okay. Okay. So soon, Luis becomes quite proficient at heptopod B. That's the writing and found that when writing it, trains of thought were directionless, and premises and conclusions were interchangeable. She found herself starting to think in Heptapod B, and began to see time as Heptapods do. Louise saw glimpses of her future, and of a daughter she did not yet have. This raised questions about the nature of free will. Knowledge of the future would imply no free will, because knowing the future means it cannot be changed. But Louise asked herself, what if the experience of knowing the future changed a person? What if it evoked a sense of urgency, a sense of obligation to act precisely as she knew she would? So let's let's talk about that because I think that that is sort of we we touched on it earlier. That is the the the, the to me the refreshing sort of uh, alternate view of determinism that this story takes, and that's that there is a she she seems to find satisfaction in in performing. I think is a is a phrase even used in the story performing her present. And and mm-hmm. and and she knows what she's going to say, yet she she is almost compelled to say it. And and there seems to be a certain uh, pride she takes in performing it to you know perfectly. Um, which you know I I want to know how 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 do you feel about that? Does it seem does it seem um, plausible? I guess as a premise that someone would would feel that this way when engaging their own future. Whoa, here's a philosophy question. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't know we were on hmm. philosophy talk. Um, <laughs> the story demands it, so we go wherever we, the story yeah, takes us. Right. You know, this this kind of, for me, got back to the whole thing of looking at at our fate as presented in literature and fiction. And, you know, every story that you come... Well, okay, so excuse me for, for bringing up um, Star Wars. <laughs> no, absolutely. Go for it. You know, it, it's all about fate, right? You know, Luke's fate. Where are you going to be? Your Darth Vader's fate. It's all an arc of his fate. Mm. And you know, can you can you stop your um, can you stop your fate? Can you interrupt what's destined for you? And we never really ask the question until this story. Would you want to interrupt your fate? Right. You know we. We always assume that, yeah, you know, you want to, inter- Oedipus, you know, again, you want to interrupt your fate. You don't want this to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or you always want to screw with, you know, the future mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, we like to screw with things. Right, we want to make it know? better. Like the- right, right, yeah, you know. Well, I, I think that poses an interesting question again because f- for myself in the scenario presented for the main character, I feel like every muscle fiber, every part of me would be fighting against going along with what she has ahead of her, even if she's seen it and she sees how it plays out. You know, like what, yeah. like what, what, 
is it is it like a noble pursuit or is it just acceptance or what do you think it is there that that pushes her along because i personally with that with that knowledge i'm I don't know that I could. I think I would be that person to push against fate and try to change my future. So I'm going to try and explain what what the, what's going on in my head right now, and I think it's it's touching mm-hmm. on it, but I'm I'm going to struggle because I have to speak sequentially. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I'm thinking of times a flat circle as a re- related to True Detective. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember that the idea that like this suffering is eternal and and all this stuff, right? And it was a very dark look at a similar sort of concept to what we're getting here. And to me, um, she has this heptapod view, and, and I like that it is a more um, positive and sort of um, uh, uplifting look at a similar subject matter. And um, she is looking at her life as a whole, and even though she is forced to perform it sequentially because of like the nature of existence, um, she can see all of it. So even as she enters into moments of tragedy with her daughter and she knows where it's going, she equally sees everything that came before, and she sees all the good times, and she has all these moments that stick out to her that I think makes it all worth it. And 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 it feels like this is just what it is. As much as I can't change what has come before, I can't change what is to come. It is all part of the same moment to her because she can see it all at once. And so she... she uh, has an acceptance there i think that is actually pretty beautiful and and i think a lot when people talk about tragedy of like you know about about what is lost when someone dies and you focus more on like what existed when they lived i think that's a beautiful way to look at it and and say that those moments of life are are sort of eternal and always there right um even though that person is now gone in our sequential experience did I did I do any justice trying to put that out there? <laughs> that was great. I yeah. think you kind of yeah. you kind of prompted something in me. Uh, this the idea of losing someone, right? The idea of it's a linear. Their life is a linear timeline, and so the idea of right. losing someone and having them born at the same time, the joy and the suffering. And if you could if you could place yourself like if you could be outside of time and you could place yourself at any time. You understand that I think that does, like you're saying, it does make it easier to cope with someone's death because you are dealing with that potentially as they as they are born. So it's like it's like sort of you don't have to you don't if you don't want to you don't have to linger in the death. You could you could be in the the middle. Right, you could be in the happy times and like specifically mm-hmm. key in on those things rather than you know only being because it's like 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 in a linear storyline. When the death happens, you're 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 trapped in that time. You're trapped in that death for whatever right. period of time you grieve for. In, in, in yeah, you're touching on the essential conflict of this story because as she she even says, like she, they are unable, our human minds are unable to fully understand the way heptopods view the universe, and so it's within her that the 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 conflict is like I have to experience this sequentially, yet I can see it as a whole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's that is the essential conflict I think that 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 he's dealing with in this story. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it'd be interesting to hear what a, a Zen master would have to say about this. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you know, and one, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is is that we assume that if we knew our fate, we could um, view it as a series of discrete events mm-hmm. that you could go through and pick and choose which discrete events you want, and then you get the best of all possible worlds, but. You know, as we know from Groundhog Day or, you know, any other time travel movie, if you start 
Um, you can't you can't grab a chunk of an event or an experience and have the event turn out the same. Uh, you know, I mean, if I if I want the experience of having um, having a friend, that also means that that experience will include that friend's death at some point. Mm. So, do I never form friends? No, I form friends because right. of the entire rich experience. Yeah, and if you extrapolate that out to the way she feels about her daughter, you know, she still chooses to conceive the daughter. I, you could you could argue whether or not she actually had a choice. I think is irrelevant. She goes ahead with conceiving the daughter, even as she is 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 talking to the daughter and expressing that your entire life is contained within my perception of time. And I can see all of it from the moment of conception to the moment of your death. And I can see all the happy, I can see all the sad, and I am still um, choosing to go through with it because it, it already is, I think. Like, it's 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 almost not a choice, but it's more just a, I can see it now, and I, and there, but there is a sense of satisfaction or, or acceptance that I think is important. Because once again, this is not a negative story. This, this isn't a story about being claustrophobic and, and trapped. It's more a story about uh, like joyful acceptance of that, of that future. When we think of it in our own narrative human minds, and we don't think of it as a heptapod, you can see, you can see the, the beats, the plot points that are leading to eventually what happens with her daughter. You can yeah. see her daughter with what was it? She was like with a guy in a car, something with some drinking, and somebody was drinking or something like that. So I think she, my, I, I wasn't completely clear, but it seemed to me like maybe she was rock climbing and fell. Is how she died? No, I think that's pretty clear. That's what happens. Okay, are you talking about like how um, she died, James, or just something that happened? I thought that there was a. I thought that there was besides the time that she actually died. I thought there was another time that she was like telling her daughter to be careful, kind of thing. Like she was out late with boys or something like that. Yes. And then yeah, like yeah. she was worried because she knew how her daughter would die. You know, I, I mean, the, the character of Louise really strikes me as being um, somebody who's who's thrown into this situation and then learns something and then shows an amazing strength of character mm. and and how that em- embodies it in the story is. She learns the future of her daughter, which is going to be death as a, as a rock climbing accident. Mm-hmm. And all throughout the story, she is watching her daughter learn to be a rock climber, learn to take these chances. And, you know, I mean, in some cases, actually, you know, it's like climbing. And, you know, how could you look at your child and see them learning to climb and knowing this is how you're going to die? Yeah. And not say, you know, get down right. from that rock. Right. Um, and that's the challenge that that, that that you're presented with here. Yeah, I love that. It's like she doesn't have this easy life that she can just step back and look at and then perform. She has a tragedy that, that is put on display throughout this entire story to, to drive it home. And I, that does remind me of some brilliant writing in there where uh, it, it seemed to me, and now I'm not a parent, I know James isn't, um, but... But Ted was talking about how she looks at her daughter and for like one of the first times she realizes that this is a completely different person than me, that this is not a copy of me. This is not a clone, that they are doing things that I would never do. And there's sort of a uh, like it's like a, a sobering moment for Luis as, as, as a parent. 
And and there's a lot of these like parental moments throughout that really drives home the tragedy and beauty of the parent daughter relationship, the mother daughter relationship that that goes on here that is so effective. And, and that's that emotional truth I was talking about earlier that I think sometimes can get lost as we delve so much into the science is that there is a real emotional truth and core to this story. Yeah. You know, and that, that one passage, I've got that highlighted. It's, you know, it's a masterful piece of writing. Do you want to go, you go ahead and read it, a little bit? I, it would be, would be I great. got it right here. Yeah. yeah. So this is, yeah, this is that paragraph that you're talking about. What I'll think about, or, I'm sorry. What I'll think is that you are clearly maddeningly, not me. It will remind me again, that you won't be a clone of me. You can be wonderful, a daily delight, but you won't be someone I could have created by myself. You know, and it's like, wow, Ted, <laughs> nice yeah, job. Right. Man, you know, it's like, whew, yeah. And d- did that passage resonate with you? Oh, you know, I am a parent, okay. and, and I look at my kids, and I go like, where did you come from? Where did you <laughs> learn that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you sure didn't learn it from me. And... um you know, you would you would love to have control over everything in your life, and then you have kids, and suddenly you realize, nope, <laughs> yeah, you know, I I get I get to influence things to a certain extent, mm. but uh, this whole parenting thing is just the power of suggestion at best. <laughs> I like that. So I, that's good. I mean, it felt like just a true moment to me, and I'm I'm glad to hear that that it rang that way to you too. No, I have a question. Just as a biography for Ted, is Ted a parent? I did not see that. Um, do you know, Mark? I don't know offhand. Um, I know Ted is very private. Yeah, that's and that's probably why. That's probably why I didn't see that. Maybe this isn't. He he he, he tends to keep to himself, um, and and maybe that's not widely known. Um, I do know he has a partner, but but beyond that, I, I didn't see if they had kids. Um, whether he's a parent or not, he really did find I think a lot of truth in this, and I think there is a point where he talked about. Um, one of the inspirations for this story being a friend of his who had had a child. And so maybe, maybe it could be conversations with them and, 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 or, or his own experience. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, either way, it feels like he nailed it. <laughs> right. I think he has understanding regardless. Well, if you can nail the physics, uh, you know, nailing the whole parenthood thing is right up there. He did that too. So, <laughs> all right. So let's, I'm going to give the final paragraph of plot and then we can kind of put a bow on this. So, one day, after the information exchange with the heptapods, the aliens announced they were leaving. They shut down the looking glasses, and their ships disappeared. It was never established why they left, or why they had come in the first place. The heptapod languages changed Luis's life, and once she knew, her f- knew the future, she never acted contrary to that future. Gary and Luis start spending time together and eventually marry. When Gary asks Luis if she wants a baby, she agrees knowing that they will divorce and that their daughter will die young. So that that comes around, that really drives the point home when at the end she she accepts this. Because I think it's hard for me to imagine reading this a little bit as, as a first time, never having seen the movie Arrival. But I imagine a reader is probably reading about the tragedy of the daughter, thinking about, okay, this story's probably got some time travel elements and holding out hope that it's going to be revealed that Louise is able to change this horrible fate. She's, she's able to change that it's going to happen, right? Like I, right. I, I have a feeling people are going to be rooting for that as they read it. And then you get to the end and it's, it, it's the opposite of that. It's acceptance. 
So this part of the story is the the part that drives me absolutely berserk. Okay. That Ted, I mean, he, you know, basically what he does is he pulls the plug on the aliens, just flips them off like a light switch. They're gone. No explanation why. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah. Um, I have written stories like that, and I've, they've been rejected and sent back and said, no, you really have to finish this. <laughs> you know, we need, we need resolution here. Right. And which they do in the movies. I, you know, what really hit me was that the way that Ted does this, where he ends the story and, um, you know, Louise uh, accepts what she's doing, like you say, accepts it rather than tries to change it. Mm-hmm. It turns the story not into a story about the aliens and not about the language, but about how Louise decides to, deal with this new revelation right. in her life. And and that's um, why I think he's able to get away with not explaining the aliens here. Um, when you take it and you turn it into a two-hour movie, um, maybe there's different expectations there. But I, I think, the, yeah, that's you're right, because it seems almost like this this frustratingly, like, how can you not explain why they're there? What? But but when it ties back into everything we were talking about with this sort of, like, they're, they're playing, like, five-dimensional chess, and, and we just have no concept of what they're doing, that for them to inexplicably leave sort of plays into that. And it's like, well, maybe they have a reason, but we just don't see it. And I love that you can kind of read into the subtext, which I think Denis Villeneuve does in the movie, and to try and see that the gift of this language, um, the gift of this perception is sort of their goal. But I will admit, I go, I went into the story having seen the movie, so would I have come to that conclusion on my own? I don't know. But I imagine there might have been people who read it and said, oh, this is why the aliens came. Right. Well, see, and that's an interesting point. Is is that if you watch the movie before you read the story, yeah, you'll walk into it with just exactly what you just said. If you read the story and then walk into the movie, um, you kind of come. You're you're going to come some to some different conclusions. Right. About is that how you how experience this whole the story? By the way, did you read it first? Um, I read the I read the story first. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and then walked into the movie. Um, and I was like. Oh, okay. That is a very movie thing to do. Okay, so so we're gonna have to <laughs> revisit that next week when we talk about the movie. But uh, James, I wanted to get your your thoughts here on at the end. On uh, do you think I do you think I'm onto something, or do you think that people are reading this story hoping for the child to be saved? I mean, I think definitely. I think I in in I think a more typical sci-fi narrative that that plays out, right? Like yeah. we figure out. Um, why the aliens are here, what, like, like she, maybe she's able to change her, her future based on this alien, um, language. She's able to see it and now change it based on that. And that's like a power that she's been given by, by these, uh, aliens. But I like what you said about, cause I felt kind of the same way about this idea that like, we, we didn't understand so much about them and we don't understand why they're there in the first place. So why, why would we understand why they would leave, mm-hmm. you know? Like it, yeah. it, it, of course, it makes sense that they would leave without us understanding why, because we didn't know why they were there in the first place. So they may have accomplished some goal, and like whether it was altruistic or or whether it was something, you know, like the the general was like they're gonna we're gonna make deals on resources or whatever and all that stuff. Like, yeah, it, it's not it's not really about that. It's about how you like it's about changing your perspective. You know, it's about uh-huh. thinking about something outside of your own existence. I think. And I think yeah. that in fitting with that, the aliens leaving and us not understanding fits. I think that ties a nice bow on it. 
I, I will. So another, there's there is the common sci-fi trope of like something tor- terrible's happened, and then we and then you try and change it. But what you often also see is the inverse of that, like uh, the original Terminator film, um, being that there is a horrible future. The events of the story are an effort to change it, and then at the end, it's revealed that everything you did was for naught. the The future is inevitable. It is still going to happen. Now, I'm not talking about later Terminators where they changed that, but the original one, (laughs) the original one, the implication is it cannot be changed. Everything that you thought you did was all already going to happen. Right. Right. And so that's the way I think it's like one of those two is what we typically see from time travel stories. And so this to me was a refreshing change in that sense of it is neither of those things. It is it is more Mm -hmm. of a positive look at the idea of the inescapable fate. Um, mm-hmm. which sounds like uh, like that's not even possible, but it, it, I really felt that way reading this. Like it was it was a celebration of the idea of fate in a way. That and that that yeah, that's great. That's very poetic. Uh, you know, that fate is not something you necessarily want to escape. Right. Uh, Ted brought this up in his his talk too. He talked about Back to the Future, mm-hmm. and he talked about Looper and how you know, both of those movies are, you see fate and fate is something to overcome. And, you know, the successful hero at the end changes his life to be better because fate was wrong. Right. You know, in his story, he's like going like, no, fate was right. Right. And fate's something to embrace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is, it is as much a part of you as your past or as, as even your present. It is, it just is. And, and, uh, I think finding acceptance of it is the laudable thing that Luis does here that we can all, that's why we can look at Luis as a, as a, as I think a powerful character. And because I think there is a certain self driven, um, journey of coming to accept, learning to accept what the, the tragedy of what, of what comes to be. And, um, you know, just touching a little bit, I, I think that's something that is explored in the film, really really well and I'm, I'm i'm really excited to go watch this movie now um mm-hmm. i have not watched it yet other than my original i think i saw it in the theater originally i haven't seen it since i am so excited to rewatch this movie especially now that i've read the story i think it's going to mm-hmm. add a lot to uh, a lot of these scientific scenes uh, i think there's I, I imagine there may be some things I'll, I'll be frustrated with changes wise but just in general um i love denny villeneuve as a director i thought this movie was brilliant when i saw it and and i'm very excited to get back into it yeah. Yeah, me too. Definitely. Uh I did have one more quick point about the book that I wanted to make, which was okay. the this idea of um of something outside of our understanding. And it was that these these um looking glass mirror things, right? In the story it said that they at first people think that it's some sort of new um compound or some sort of new thing that could be used and utilized by the human race, but it turns out to just be like silicone or some sort of like um Right. Am I right? Silica, in saying that's some yeah. sort of silica it's, based thing. Yeah. And ultimately nothing we hadn't seen before. They were just using it in ways that we couldn't understand. Yeah. Yeah. It's a windshield. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. And I mean, that that's the that's the take on technology that they keep getting. It's like, oh, you know, all these wonderful things that the heptapods give them are like, oh, way we already knew that. Or we just, you know. There's stuff that, that is not, it's outside, it's, again, getting back to my chickens, you know, they don't get it because they don't have the vocabulary to understand what happened. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and so these heptopods are, are understanding life on another level that we can't even comprehend. But this story uh, gives us a little springboard. It gives us a little taste of, of what that might be. 
uh, maybe maybe Ted understands the world and the universe in a way that that we can only imagine. <laughs> um, Ted is a secret heptapod. Yeah, oh. <laughs> Ted's a secret yeah, heptapod. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we didn't count his legs. You know, so. uh, all right, uh, I think that's a great spot to leave this discussion for now. We will resume it next week with Mark when he returns. Uh, Mark, you, you have mentioned to me in the past that you are also an educator. Um, I thought you might talk a little bit about that uh, for LinkedIn Learning and and what, what oh, yeah. you teach on there. Well, if you haven't gotten enough of me here, um, you can uh, you can catch me up on LinkedIn Learning, which used to be called Lynda.com. And I teach uh, two topics, one of them which is Raspberry Pi, and one of them which is I love is Raspberry Pi, very tasty. Very, well, uh, yeah, yeah, you and my wife, unfortunately, she's she's very disappointed that the Raspberry Pi is a credit card size micro or microcomputer. Oh, okay, um, I see. <laughs> she would much prefer if it was a cooking show, but right. you know, since I uh, mean, in my opinion, yeah. equally tasty, but to each yeah, very fun, very fun stuff. Um, uh, and then I teach uh, the R programming language when uh, I'm not writing science fiction. Okay, well, that's awesome. So definitely, uh, is there a way people can find you online if they want to follow you? Oh, yes. Actually, probably the best way to do it is if you look for Neiman Ross. There is only, there's only three of us right now. It's a hyphenated last name. Okay. And you'll eventually bump across NeimanRoss.com. And you can find out more about what it is that I do. And you can even write. And yes, I will write back. <laughs> Are you on Twitter? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Reddit. I'm on... Uh, what else is out there? Oh, I'm on Skype right now. <laughs> um, but if you really want to, if you really want me to respond, uh, send me an email and you can find out how to do that at my website, NeimanRoss.com. Perfect. Thank you so Mark. Uh, thank you so much, Mark, for joining us. <laughs> and, uh, we really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to talking with you again next week. Um, listeners, if you would like to enter to win that copy of Stories of Your Life and Others, make sure to send that email. Once again, the subject line, Heptapods, and we will uh, we will enter you in to win it. Uh, it's, a, it's a cool collection uh, filled with awesome stories. I'm sure I haven't read them all, but um, just this little bit of Ted Chang that I've read, I, I'm eager to dive into more of it. So uh, make sure to do that. All right. I can't think of a movie that I've been more excited to, to jump back into. I'm excited to watch Arrival. Denny Villeneuve is one of my favorite working directors. Um, I cannot wait to dive into it. Uh, I, we do want to thank our patrons, Cora S. and Amanda VP, for being patrons and for using your tokens towards this project because we would not be covering it as early as we are without without those tokens. So we really appreciate you putting those towards this project. And um, I hope you're enjoying the coverage so far. Yeah, and uh, if you wanted to become a patron yourself, make sure to go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And if you'd like to follow us online, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are at ink to film on all three. And make sure to join our Council of Inklings on Facebook. You can leave a rating review on iTunes or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Those ratings really help to spread the word about the podcast and get more listens. So we really appreciate those. We read them all and we post them on social media all the time. So definitely send those in if you can. And we just wanted to thank uh, Ross Bugden for use of our intro and outro music and Jennifer DeLazana for providing our transcripts. Okay, Mark, thank you so much for joining us this week. We're going to be covering the film next week, and we can't wait for you to join us there again. I'm looking forward to it, you guys. This has really been fun. Thanks for being here. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.